I'm sitting in a colder, darker Richard, looking out over the bare, muddy patches of earth that were once the barley beds. The allotment is spent, and it's really funny to think that over the past few weeks there has been everything from toddlers to TV crews trundling about the plot. It's been a busy, slightly crazy time, and not least because the hops have been harvested. I'm Ben Richards, and in partnership with There's a Beer for That, this is Growing Beer. Hello, and welcome back to what is one of the last times we'll be here together in Richard this year, I think. It's mid-October, <laughs> it is noticeably colder, uh, I'm wearing an extra couple of layers to keep myself nice and warm here in the shed, and the growing is finished. So this episode, we'll be looking at how the hop harvest went, what yeast we ended up with, and I'll be heading back over to crisp maltings to collect the finished malted barley, ready for the big day, the brew. It's now a very peaceful place here on the allotment. There's no one around as the season is just about over and the temperature is dropping by the day. I'm wearing a couple of extra layers just to keep myself warm as we record this now. All of the green has gone too. The leaves are rapidly changing colour and what was once a glorious golden-ish plot of barley, you know, with several hints of, of weedy green and a few flat patches, it's now just bare earth. Whilst the hot plants, they're just lonely vines now. They've been stripped of their hop cones and foliage. I mean, it's, it's been a bit crazy since we last spoke. At the very start of September, before I harvested the hops, uh, I'd had the regional TV news folk out, um, and a spot on garden as well too, which did make me chuckle. I mean, obviously it's absolutely wonderful to see the project and growing beer on primetime BBC television, but it was quite funny that <laughs> my entire wife's family are, are big horticulturalists. They're either professional gardeners, designers, or botanists, and out of everybody, it's me that ends up on Gardens World, prattling on about beer. But there was no time to let fame go to my head, as it was time to harvest the hops. Throughout August, those little white hop burrs were slowly developing into full-blown cones, growing bigger and bigger, uh, gradually weighing down the vines and starting to turn this wonderful green colour. This continued until about a week or so after we spoke at the end of August, and then it was time to cut down all the laterals and main hop vines, gather them up and pick off the hop cones from them. However, considering how important this is to get it just right and get those cones you know, as ripe as they can, really, I didn't just blunder into it and start chopping wildly. First of all, Wyndham paid me a visit to advise on the condition of the hot plants in the run-up to the harvest, and fortunately, still very much disease-free and in good condition. And then I made a little trip up to a commercial hop farm to see how the farmers pick their hops on a huge scale. Now, it wasn't just me going up on the day. It's actually part of a bigger event, uh, a hop walk, which is a large gathering of brewers that get together to learn more about the crop in the UK and around the world, see how the harvest is going, and learn a little more about all things hops. This year, it was at Stocks Farm in Hereford, and rather conveniently, Steve and Dave from Crisp were also there. So early on that morning, I met them in the car park, and I handed over the two rather small sacks of barley to be entrusted in their care for malting. Now after that slightly weird looking handover was done, I set out on the hop walk, which is a set route through the many, many rows of hops. I mean, in total, I think there's something like a hundred acres on this farm, covering a wide variety of different hops. There's loads of people there too. It's quite a busy day, and throughout the farm, there are a number of experts dotted about to explain more about the plants and the processes that are carried out each year. Now, one of these experts is Dr. Peter Darby. He researches uh, UK hops, and he is one of, if not the, leading sources of knowledge about hops, how they grow, and, definitely, when they're ripe and when to pick them. 
so I managed to steal a few words with him about judging when those cones are ready to go. Now there are lots of people wanting to bend his ear, and there's no time for a lengthy chat, so it was straight into the questions when I had the chance. Hello, Peter. Um, I mean, my, my, one of my challenges at home right now is that I've got my four varieties. I've got Goldings, Foggles, some Perla, and UK Cascade, all looking like they're getting ripe. Well, what should I be looking for to make sure they actually are ripe? Um, the first thing, you, you look at them, and it's colour. Okay. This one you can see here is, is very green, yes. whereas this is a much yellower. Okay, it's lost some of that kind of that really vibrant green. That vibrant it? green is gone, yep. and it's starting to develop a yellow colour. Yeah. Not, not a brown, but it's just starting to get paler and slightly yellower. Yeah. And if it's still very green, it's almost certainly not ripe, whereas if it's yellow, starting to go yellow, then it's getting close. The next thing is to listen to it. Okay. I'm afraid there's conversation going on around <laughs> us right. here, but you can hear. Okay, yes, yes. Yeah. So there's a crunch to it. Yeah. It won't do that if it's underripe. Yeah. It, it will be soft, but that crunch, that very definite... Yes, there. I can hear that sort of papery scrunching. Pa pa like paper, paper, yeah. yes. Yes, like that. That tells you that it's worth considering. So the first thing you, before is, is look at it for colour, look, look at it and listen to it. Yeah. If those two are posit positive, then you take, the c take some cones off and see how they pull, up, pull yes. off. If they pull off easily, they're ready. This one is not quite. It's, still, it's so putting it's still up a fight, isn't it? It's putting up a fight. So it's not quite ready, which is why it's not been harvested yet. <laughs> but you then open up the cone. Yeah. Like that, and you look at the colour of the resin. Yes. If it's white or whitish, then it's not ready. Okay. If it's yellow, it's it's good. If it's starting to go orange, you're you're late. It's it's you've missed the boat. <laughs> you've missed, you, it's Yeah. Not that's a bad thing. Okay. Um, but you want it to be at least yellow, heading towards orange. Okay. So um, that, that the real deep, deep yellow deep colour. Yellow. If it's yeah. a pale yellow, it's it, it's it's coming on the whiter end of the scale, and it's okay. not quite ready. Yeah. The other thing which I've done then, what 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 I did just since you're only listening to it, <laughs> is I'm putting my two thumbs at the very tip of the cone, yes. pushing down and trying to pull it apart. Separating the cone in half. I'm trying okay. to pull it in half. Yeah. And that one that I did, uh, it, it went down the first bit and then it stopped. Yeah. If it splits down that central axis, it's not ready. Okay. But if you do that, as on this one here, yeah. and it just it leaves the central axis intact then it's it's virtually ready okay so looking at this one we've got a couple of some green cones still yeah but mostly yellow so it's it's on the cusp it's okay. sounding ripe yep. but when i did that then i had a cone that split a bit at the top and one that didn't so again we're right on the cusp so this isn't quite ready yep. but it's very close okay i would reckon another three three days or so as little as that ready. and it'll, it'll go over yep. and ready and we're, we're looking it's really quite close we're, we're looking at maybe three days of the, uh, when it's not quite ready, then 10 days when it's absolutely ripe, and then as you get beyond that 10-day period, you're into overripe. Now, if you take the cone and you sort of rub it the wrong way, like oh, yes, yep. stroking a cat the wrong way, <laughs> this one you see is staying intact. Yes. If those petals start to come out, then it's overripe. Okay. Because naturally, it's wanting to lose those petals. So if the, if the resin is, is going slightly orange, if it's a very good yellow colour, but if you rub it the wrong way and the coat and the petals fly out mm -hmm. then see this one isn't doing that to much extent i can do that and it's hardly flying oh yeah but it will just absolutely disintegrate if it's overripe okay just fall apart yeah so there is a window there that you can recognize yeah. thank you very much peter okay no problem thanks
a quick but very helpful few minutes with Dr. Darby there, which set me up nicely to get back to the plot and try to gauge if my hops were ready yet, which wasn't actually that easy. The four varieties have all ripened at slightly different times, whilst the two plants that face the coast uh, they have got a fair bit of browning on them from the high winds. Now that said though, the lupulin glands that contain the all-important alpha and beta acids that we're looking for, well they were looking that lovely yellow colour, and the cones had uh, this wonderful papery rustle about them. You can really hear it and feel it when you, when you touch and almost scrunch those cones. So I decided to go for it. It was time to harvest the hops. Now, also, it turns out that it's not that easy to harvest them. Well, it's not that easy for me to harvest them, at least, because the binds and the laterals, they've done a fairly good impression of an old sort of enchanted castle, and they were very well intertwined. The comments that uh, Wyndham had made throughout the year about the not-quite-so-suitable structure for which the hops to grow on, completely right. The, <laughs> the clumping, shall we say, made it tricky to get individual cones identified and, and to work at what I had. But it wasn't the end of the world, though, as I was able to work up the plants and cut them down piece by piece, one variety at a time. But it was a time-consuming process, and it took me a full day to do the whole lot. Now, back at the farm, they have teams of people clearing acres in this time, thousands of plants. But then they do also have some very, very cool machinery. The taller binds, they're cut down and loaded onto trailers before being taken to have the hops separated from the leaves. I mean, in what I would describe as an awesomely noisy, terrifying bit of kit. <laughs> Somewhere between engineering marvel and Victorian nightmare. I mean, it's the size of a small warehouse, and it pulls up the full binds on, on giant hooks, and it drags them through a series of clanking, spinning machines that systematically shake, strip, and sort the hops from the rest of the plant before conveying them to the kilns to be dried out. Now, the shorter varieties that don't get much taller than about eight foot or so, they're collected in slightly differently. Instead, they have a giant harvester drive over the top of them, like this massive N-shaped tractor, really. And as it goes over the top, it strips out the hops as it goes. And needless to say, both of these methods are just hugely more effective than mine, which is very, very inefficient. I mean, even when compared to the pre-mechanised days uh, that saw families holidaying from London to Kent as hop pickers, traipsing down for a late summer bout of manual labour, they still did it far more effectively than I did. But I got there. So, with the binds cut down, the hops picked off, next up it was the drying and the freezing. Now you can brew with fresh hops, take them off the bind and pop them straight into the brew, but as I was waiting for the barley to be malted, this wasn't an option. If I left them just as they were, they would quickly start to compost. There's too much moisture in there and they'll break down and start to mould and that's it, they've had it. So it's really important that I dry them out to remove this unwanted moisture. Now after this, it's then a case of preserving them from oxygen as much as possible to keep them in good condition. I did all of this by using a dehydrator back in the now immaculate, dustless kitchen, and once it had a few hours in there, I packed them into sealable bags. Uh, I squished out all of the air, and then I popped them into the freezer to await the brew. And then that was it. The hops were done. Now I ended up with a little bit of perla, perhaps 50 grams, about 75 grams of goldings, over 100 grams of Fuggles, and roughly 200 grams of the Cascade. Now, considering I'll need about 100, 150 grams absolute tops for the brew, I've got more than enough, depending on the recipe that I go for in the end. Now, whilst all of this was going on, of course, the barley was back with Steve and his colleagues. 
I'd, I'd ummed and ahed about how I should best malt the barley, whether I would try to do it myself at home or on the allotment, but in the end I took up Steve's offer to do it on their micro-maltings, which is basically a miniature version of their huge commercial setup. It does up to 16 kilos and, and, and is a very controlled, precise way of malting the barley. And I am I, I'm so glad I did that. Now, I mentioned before that the dormancy period in the grain affects how long you have to wait until the barley can be malted. And it turns out that this year it's around six to eight weeks. The folk at Crisp were able to test the barley to make sure that the grain had come through this properly, see how viable all of the grains were, and when would be the best, soonest time to get the malting underway. Considering that there is a set process of soaking, drying, resting, turning, and then kilning the barley, without their help I strongly suspect I would have messed this up. I would have either tried to malt the dormant grain, I would have overheated in the kilning stage, who knows what I would have done. So as soon as I heard that my precious, precious little bags had been successfully malted, I jumped in the car, drove over to Crisp and picked up that barley. And whilst I was there, I caught up with maltings manager Jake Lambert to find out more about the process. Right, um, I'm here with Jake Lambert. We're above the labs and the pilot malting area. Um, That's correct. In Great Ryberg at Crisp, Crisp Maltings. Um, thank you, Jake. Seven weeks ago, I gave Steve two sacks of my finished grain in a, what could be construed as a weird handover in a field in the middle of the countryside. Um, well, that, that was sort of nearly two months ago. Well, what's happened since? Well, those samples, we brought them into uh, our laboratory, and first thing we needed to do was assess if that, that barley was going to be ready for us to make malt out of it. So to do that, uh, we look at the barley, we take a number of grains, we put them in a petri dish and we add a small amount of water. Each day we count those grains and we see how many have grown. When we get to a good number, 96%, after three or four days, we think that's going to be ready for processing. Um, if it's less than that, it's what we call dormant and the grain's not ready to grow. And that means uh, it's not, it doesn't think it's the next season yet. So we need the grain to be ready and thinking it's the next season, it's going to be the spring, so it's going to want to grow like it was in the ground. Um, once it's decided it's ready to do that, we uh, micromalt the sample. So we have a small scale pilot maltings plant which replicates exactly what we do on our full industrial scale. As it was a small sample <laughs> we had, uh, a few kilos, we ran that in our uh, micromalting process. So start of the process when we go into production is steeping. So grain when it's been harvested, maybe around 12 to 15% moisture. To get that grain to want to grow, we need to get it up to 45% moisture. So to do that, we completely immerse it in water. We'll let it soak for say eight hours and we'll drain it. While it's uh, covered and immersed in water, we'll bubble air up through that uh, water. We do that, that keeps the water oxygenated, which is going to keep the grain healthy. After that first immersion, it will be uh, in what we call an air rest for another 8 to 10 hours. At that point, the embryo is going to really want to start to be active and start to grow. We blow air up through that. Uh, sample because we don't want uh, it's going to start to produce heat and CO2 so to keep control of the CO2 and the temperature we blow cool air up through the grain um, after that 10 or 12 hours we soak it in water again for another around 6 hours we drain it and at that point we want the moisture to be 45% um, 
On this sample, the moisture is attached low at 42.4, but the grain was still growing really well, so yeah. we were really happy. Okay. Um, we then go into the germination phase, which lasts for five days, and this is where the grain really starts to grow. Um, rootlets come out from the base of the grain. They can start to mat together, which can, can cause us a problem if there's no airflow through the grain and we don't get any uh, cooling. So every 12 hours, we turn that grain to pull all those rootlets apart and keep everything nice and free and open. Okay, my guess would be that most people don't imagine that you actually encourage the grain to grow and start to use up that energy in, in the seed really. If, I mean, my, one of my early assumptions before I knew a lot more about brewing and malting was that you could just harvest it, brew with it. But it, it really, you need to do quite a lot of work, don't you, to get it ready? Yeah, we do that work because uh, if you take barley, it's a very hard grain. You can't chew barley. Uh, malt, if you chew malt, you get that nice, soft, crunchy uh, flavour, which is the malty flavour you want for the beer. And the process that's happened to allow that really hard grain to be used as a processable sample for a brewer is uh, the cell walls inside have really been broken down. So... Um, that's what the malting process is. The grain grows, it breaks down those cell walls, it makes the starch free, which it would use to, uh, for energy to grow and to be a plant. Uh, we let those cell walls break down and then we stop the process by kilning it and drying it out again. So that preserves the starch, which is good for the brewer. Um, it creates those little bit of sugars, which then gives us flavour and colour in the malt. And Kilning it also takes it down to a low moisture so it can be stored and it's ready for the brewer to use when he wants to start his mash. And that really just kills the grain off, doesn't it? It's, it's kind of a dead, inert block of starch by then. It does, but we need to control the temperatures we use uh, in kilning process because you still want to preserve the enzymes. Which the brewers needs those enzymes that are within the malt to be able to convert all that starch into sugars, so he's going to get some alcohol. So it's gone through the malting process. How much have we got left over? What's the final volume that I'm going to be able to take forward so, to the final brew? So we have uh, 3.8 kilos mm -hmm. of uh, finished malt, yep. which from the analysis looks really nice and suitable for brewing. It's got a good colour. All there are ana other analysis looks good. Friability, which is how easy the grain can break up when we uh, run that test, mm -hmm. shows that all the grain grew really well there was okay. no whole grains left at the end of that test which would be if there was a dead kernel it wouldn't process and it would be a hard whole grain left at the end of that test mm -hmm. that was there was non-existent so everything was good from that point of view that, that is quite a relief not only have we actually got to the end of the season and harvested something but actually that the, the grain is useful it was worth it and good quality stuff as well yeah and it yeah it survived all of the weather and it's uh, it was stored well and it survived uh, through our processing and performed well to give you a good malt at the end that really is a relief <laughs> <laughs> i had this horrible feeling uh, in my stomach over the past, well actually no, I'd say past six months, not just sort of six, seven days or so, that uh, any one of those ingredients could just fall apart at any time. Um, but we don't talk about the storms, by the way. July is, no. July is dead to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you, and you put us under pressure because we, we were the, we were the last, well, one, one bar, the last part, you're under pressure now. We've made the good malt. You've got to make the good beer. You can sit <laughs> back now, can't you? Yeah, yeah, don't remind me. So we've got that 3.8 kilos ready to go. That's not the very final step, though, is it? I can't just take those whole grains and chuck them into the mash uh, when we're doing the brew. 
No. So what we're in the process of doing at the moment is milling the grain. So the how coarse or how fine we mill that grain is quite critical because uh, you want to produce a good beer that's going to uh, have the husk intact but all of the starch available to be attacked by the enzymes to be able to convert the starch into sugars but when you then filter to separate that wort you've created ready for the beer you want the husks to be able to filter all of that so you get a nice clear wort so we're milling that to specific settings so the husks intact and the starch all broken up for you to use that sounds ideal so i think i've actually got some barley ready to go thank you jake no problem A big thank you to Jake there, and also again to Steve and Dave and the guys who have really helped me not just get my head around growing and planting the barley, but also the harvesting and then eventually the, the crucial malting stage at the end as well. Now, it was a really long day collecting that barley. I'm in Devon, they are in Norwich, and that, that makes one heck of a drive there and back in a day. But I really did not want to take any chances with curries. I'm sure there are many, many efficient, considerate curries out there, they just don't deliver stuff to my house. So the idea of the bags not turning up or turning up empty or damaged, oh, it just didn't bear thinking about. I've had the analysis back from Crisp and there is nothing in there that causes any concern come the big day. The grains are all alive, they're malted, there's no dead ones in there at all. The colour is quite dark, so this should transfer really well into the finished beer. And Jake said that the grains malted really well. They showed good, fast growth before kilning. So hopefully there's lots of energy in there that I'll be able to get out in the form of sugar come the mash stage of the brew. Now that just leaves the yeast. As you'll remember from previous episodes, I was trying everything I could to get as many kinds of yeast off of the allotment so that I was ready to go come the big day. And after the final sets of tests came back in uh, a week or so ago, uh, we've got two types. And it's the same two types that we found last month in August. It's the Mechnia cavia, which isn't that suitable, and the Hansenia spora, which is a brewing yeast. Now, I've been running some test brews on these. I've been checking to see how rainwater affects beers using just completely standard uh, bought ingredients. And I've been brewing with these yeasts as well, just to test them and see what impact they have on flavour and how well they ferment. And they don't ferment everything. At best, I think they'll work their way through about 20% of the sugars. They're not going to be able to do the job on their own. I'm going to have to hold my hands up and say, you know, we didn't find that Saccharomyces cerevisiae that I really was hoping for, that workhorse yeast. So I'm going to have to add some in. I think, and I've been really thinking a lot about this, whether I just brew with the Hansenia spora, but it's going to take either a very, very long time to work through those sugars and, and, and do its job. And even then, it won't ferment anywhere near half the sugars. So what we'll end up with is a very, very sweet, probably undrinkable beer. So I think... We're going to have to uh, go with very, very nearly all the ingredients found on the plot. I think if I'd had more time, and I'd started this right back at the start in January, and looked at the processes, really researched it much more heavily, I think we could have got there. I still think it's possible. And I think next year I'm still going to try again and see if I can find that yeast to brew with. But given the time scales that we had and the approach that I took, it just wasn't enough. Uh, the guys in the lab were absolutely great. Every sample they analysed, and if it was in there, they would have found it. So the plan, come brew day then, is to take the yeast that we have found and give them a helping hand with a, a, a regular Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And that is all for ingredients. That's the hops, the barley, the water, the yeast. I know exactly where I stand with everything. And that means the next episode, we are brewing. 
Now, I'll be doing so with my friend John McGill from Powder Keg Brewery. He has got an awful lot of experience, so he's there to help guide me, make sure I don't do anything really silly, and basically mess up what has been 10 months' worth of work. It's going to be very exciting, but it's also a little bit scary. But hopefully it's going to be a really enjoyable day. Ah, which reminds me, if you have been enjoying the podcast so far, please do feel free to tell others about it or rate it on iTunes. Uh, Sharing is caring, and it'd be great if more and more people can find out about the podcast and join us on this journey. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Join me next time when we are brewing. Goodbye. Goodbye.